0: Well, thank you so much. It is uh, indeed a privilege to be here. Um, And I think when I first met Simon and Mary, uh, we had our young couples ministry on Sunday nights. And uh, my kids were in diapers and footie pajamas running around after the, you know, the meeting was over. And uh, yeah, my daughter is 12, going on 21. She is, uh, James Dobson's The Strong-Willed Child was written with her in mind. So we are definitely up against it with her, but she's a great kid. Uh, Yes, indeed, we, uh, I guess the place where I want to start is to say, I believe that your marriage matters more now than ever before. Your marriage is not just about you. It's not just about you. That you aren't just one couple in a sea of couples you are a critical building block in God's structure of marriage and family and every time every time a marriage falls apart every time a christian marriage falls apart there is compromise brought to the structure of everything God is about. <clears throat> the phrase. Maybe we should separate. Echoes in the homes. In America at a greater rate than ever before. And as the former director of marriage and family ministry at McLean Bible Church. And having been on staff for 19 years. And what Simon was referencing was prior to. Being a pastor, I worked, in, I worked in psychiatric hospitals for a decade prior to becoming a pastor. Which I always say uniquely qualifies me now to work in the church. But anyway, that's a whole nother. And so, for literally just shy of 30 years, my journey has been working with people in pain. And... In a declining marriage, there is something very unique and powerful about that pain. And my hope by the end of the evening is that I am going to give you not just a biblical framework or an understanding of why marriage is so important, but some critical and practical steps of things you can do to improve your marriage and the marriages of those around you, today. I want to give you a couple of statistics, and statistics are always tricky. You can kind of mess with them however you want to, and you can make them do a lot of different things. And so uh, I, I hold some of these things loosely, especially some of these percentages, but I think by and large they're reasonably accurate. Some of these things come from Mike McManus, who is the director of Marriage Savers right here in Potomac, Maryland. He says that today only 48% of Americans are married, down from 67% in 1960. The divorce rate in the United States is triple that in other countries, European countries. 41% of first-time marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Living together prior to marriage increases a couple's chances of getting divorced by 40%. Dramatic increase just by cohabitation prior to marriage. 48% of births today in the United States are out of wedlock births. 48%. 67% of women in the United States today will have an out-of-wedlock birth by the age of 30. Does that stagger you? I hope that it does. And you understand that more and more of those are not by accident, but by choice. I could give you a whole other set of statistics about the development of purposeful single-parent homes today by design that choosing to be a single parent without ever being married dramatically increased the first thing that i want to do tonight is to talk about the biblical understanding of marriage because everything that's happening in our culture is flying in the face of god's design and god did this for a reason And you are part of the reason. The first element of the biblical understanding of marriage, of course, is that marriage is God's creation. God thought it up. This is not a human institution. Never let anyone tell you that at some point in time in human history, human beings woke up and decided that long-term monogamous relationships were a good idea. That isn't a human thought. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And you understand that when God said that, no one had ever left their father and mother. These were the first two people that were ever created. He was creating a pattern to move into the future. Every wedding that I've ever done and I've done just shy of a hundred weddings in the last 15 years and there's a few of you here tonight which really excites me. Thank you for coming. One of the things I challenge every couple that I marry is to understand that their relationship is a covenant and not a contract. And there are three critical elements that make the marriage a covenant and not a contract. Their trust responsibility, and being unbreakable. Let me, let me just kind of flesh that out for a minute. When human beings enter into contracts with one another, one of the primary reasons they do that is because of a lack of trust. I don't trust you, you don't trust me. We enter into a contractual agreement because of our mistrust. I want to make sure that you hold up your end of the bargain. This is not a covenant. A covenant is based on trust. Do you trust God? Do you trust God that when you got married two years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, that God knew what he was doing? And at some point in time in your marital journey, when you wake up and it's really, really hard and you think to yourself, did I marry the wrong person? You immediately say to yourself, that's the wrong question because I trust in covenant relationship with God that he knew what he was doing then. Even if I didn't exactly know what I was doing. Because you know that when you get married, you don't know everything there is to know. You can't know everything there is to know. Covenants are based on trust. They are also based on responsibility. Let's flip that over to a contract. A contract is not only based on mistrust, but it's designed so that if, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to limit my liability rather than the issue of responsibility, right? So if this doesn't work out, the contract, in the effort in the contract, is to say, when this goes south, I'm going to walk away with as little damage as possible. A covenant says, I am bringing fully my responsibility to the success of this relationship to the table. That's what I'm going to do. Third and finally, a covenant is unbreakable. If you study the covenants of God through the entire scripture, God hasn't broken one yet. Contracts are breakable. We do this all the time. And by design from the very beginning, God said, this is a covenantal relationship. The two will leave their respective families of origin And they will become one. This is a great mystery, the Bible says. The word for united or joined is the word to cleave. It is the Hebrew word dabak. And the idea is to be welded or glued together. That was God's design from the very beginning. Matthew 19 16 reiterates this it says that they are no longer two but one therefore what God has joined together let man not separate let human beings not bring separation to that several years ago I did a men's conference for a church out in West Virginia and I was talking to a couple of the men standing around and the pastor of the church who invited me to come was telling me about his teenage daughter she was about I think a junior or senior in high school at the time and um she was reflecting to her dad a conversation that she had had to one of her peers at school. And his daughter was talking about marriage and the permanency of marriage and the importance of that. And her friend, with all sincerity, said, that's not how it works. No, 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 no. What you do is you get married. You kind of make all your mistakes. You figure it out you get divorced, and then you take that experience and you get married to the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Kind of like a starter marriage idea, right? Like, you know, you kind of work out the kinks the first go-around. She was serious. And you understand that this idea, why does she believe that? Well, she's seen any number of people attempt it. All around her, that's why she believes that. But the statistics tell us that that's not reality. That the the second marriage, the the long-term one, ends more quickly than the starter one did. Number one is marriage is God's design. And your marriage is about God's reputation. You need to understand that. Number two is that marriage is the foundation of culture. Marriage is by God's design, the foundation of, cre- of culture. At creation, after creating man, he created woman. He didn't just create people. He created the first marriage. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then he proceeds in various sections throughout the scriptures to instruct them on how this should work. Such as Deuteronomy 6, which your family should be Based on as you raise children. There's a study that is entitled The Destruction of Marriage Precedes the Death of a Culture. The Traditional Values Coalition, authored by Lewis P. Sheldon, chairman of the Traditional Values Coalition. Said this, British anthropologist J.D. Unwin, whose 1934 book, Sex and Culture, chronicled the historical decline of numerous cultures. Unwin studied 86 different cultures throughout history and discovered a surprising fact. No nation that rejected monogamy in marriage and premarital sexual chastity lasted longer than a generation after it had embraced sexual hedonism. Unwin stated it this way. In human record, there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continents. America is headed down the drain. Because... Not just rejecting God, although that is the foundation and the starting point. It's because they have, crea- they have rejected God's design, which creates the foundation of culture. Which starts with marriage. It is my conviction that God's prohibition on sex outside of marriage is not random and arbitrary. It is by design. God decided it. Why? Why? God tells us that as a man and a woman come together committed to, for life, they begin a journey of becoming one flesh. And what I tell young people all the time, and I will, for years, I taught the preparing for marriage class at our church. And from the very beginning, we would talk about the issue of sex outside of marriage and the result of multiple sexual partners and the destruction that is caused by that. Why? Why? Because if sex is part of God's design for oneness, that becoming one, that gluing, that welding that we talked about, then every time a person is intimate with someone, they begin the oneness process with that person, and then they tear themselves away from that one, and then they begin the oneness process with somebody else, and they tear themselves away from that and begin the oneness. So by the time they begin to become one with the one that they want to become one with in marriage they become pseudo one with any number of people prior to that point and discover that oneness at that at that juncture is really hard to achieve it's really hard to achieve this wasn't god's arbitrary desire to kill human fun this was god's purposeful plan to facilitate true oneness and the enjoyment and the joy that comes in the process. 1 Corinthians 7 The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. That's what the oneness process is all about. Number three. Marriage, number, two, number three, is marriage is a primary tool of God for sanctification. I'll tell you, I've been married for 16 years. Some of you have been married longer. There is absolutely nothing as sharpening and refining and sometimes grueling, recreating me, pounding on me, Than my marriage. Nothing. Nothing has cost me more. In terms of my own personal selfishness. Nothing has cost me more. And reshaped me. About laying down my desires. Romans 8.29. We know Romans 8.28. Really really well. About God working all things together for good. But then we stop at the end of verse 28. But verse 29 is even more significant when they're coupled together. Which says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God. When you take Romans 8:28 in isolation, you are really tempted to walk away believing that what the Bible is teaching that God's primary concern is your happiness. Because that's the way Romans 8:28 feels. It's all working together to good for good for me. No, that's not what the Bible's teaching. That's not what the Bible's teaching. What the Bible is teaching is that as God works everything together, ultimately for your transformation, God's desire is not for your happiness. It is for your holiness. So that at the end of the day, you look that much more like Jesus. If you're happy in the process, that's a benefit. That's not his design. And there's nothing more humbling, more challenging To help me in God's plan to become more like Jesus than my marriage. Nothing. Martin Luther said that marriage is the school of character. 1 Corinthians 7.28 says, But to those of you who will marry, you will face troubles, many troubles in life. And you're like, I got that part down. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, I said marriage is not about my happiness. It's about my holiness. It's not about what I get, but about what I become. In March of last year, uh, it was really about six months before that, life started to become extremely difficult for us. My, my, my wife's 90-year-old grandmother moved in with us and ultimately lived with us for two years. Um, we were, for a while, we were on a trajectory of about an, an ambulance ride from the house about once a month until we needed to transfer her to long-term care. Which is where she is today. In March of last year, my wife's closest friend was killed by her husband right here in Ashburn. Um, my wife lost her best friend. My children lost a second mother and spent countless nights in that house. The whole thing is just horrifying. It's unbelievable. The trial was supposed to begin in July. It's been postponed again to May of next year. It's going to be over 24 months before we actually go to trial. And every day is, is agony for us. In July of last year, I had open heart surgery. That saved my life. Praise the Lord. Um, it was a horrible experience. <laughs> um... And in the last year, there have been a number of changes at the church. One of which has been the loss of four of our senior leaders for a variety of reasons who were some of my closest friends. One of my mentors for 15 years. And we have been under a pile A big pile. The blanket of depression that kind of comes and goes in our home has been just some days unbearable. And there are days when my wife just says, I can't get out of bed today. I'm like, okay. We're good. I'm good with that. Um, I preached the hardest message of my life last year right after all this kind of unfolded you can go to the McLean website and listen to it it's on James chapter 1 about joy and trials and what that really means. Um, and my this has been the hardest year on our marriage in 16 years. By far. And every element of selfishness every element of I don't really want to do this every element of I wake up and make a choice every day? Because it's God's design. It's not about what I want. It's not about how I feel. Do I trust that God is transforming me into the image of Christ or don't I? Do I believe that God saw all of this before it ever came to pass or don't I? We had the hardest week of our marriage last week. And I almost called Jason and said, I don't know if I can with integrity come and teach your people on Friday night next week. Because there are times in your marriage when God's call on you to be the man that God wants you to be in your marriage or the woman that God wants you to be in your marriage You're not doing it and you're not able to do it. You don't have it in you. It's just not there. And my wife looked at me last week and she said, I just need you to, I just need to know. I just need you to say it again. That you are 100% in this. And I said, I am 100% in this. Because. My marriage. Is by God's design. And it is the foundation. My marriage contributes to the foundation of culture. I'm not going to let my marriage. Contribute to the destruction of the American culture like we see going on around. I'm not standing before God with that one. And because I believe foundationally, fundamentally that God's primary tool for making me like Jesus is my marriage. Even when I'm not able to be the man that I am called to be in it. You are going to face things that threaten your marriage. Your marriage is within the crosshairs of the enemy. Don't you believe that this is anything other, whatever you're facing, that it's anything other than spiritual warfare? You are being attacked. It may just look like your spouse, but it is the enemy (laughs) who is doing the attacking. I'm serious about that. And your choice to recognize these three foundational principles is everything about your choice to say, I'm not going anywhere in your hardest days. You have to believe it. If not, you may just get caught up into the flow of our culture. Because the fact of the matter is, everyone's doing it. Marriage isn't about me. It's about God and his reputation. My healthy marriage affirms God's design for the created order Marriage is God's creation, it is the foundation of culture, and it is God's tool for my sanctification. I don't have to like that, I just have to believe that, I have to embrace that, and then live it out by choice. I want to give you six steps, six elements, six tools, six building blocks for you to implement right tonight and for the rest of your life about helping your marriage be everything that it can be. A healthy marriage, a marriage in which the people are working is characterized, number one, by forgiveness. Forgiveness, I'm going to define forgiveness for you. Forgiveness... If you don't write anything else down, write this one down. Forgiveness is the choice to live with the consequences of someone else's sin without holding it against them. You are choosing to live with the consequences of someone else's behavior or sin without holding it against them. They cannot take back what they did. You want them to. You want them to make it right. They may be able to make it right. They may be able to change direction. But they can't change what they did. That is done. When you forgive, you are choosing to live with the consequences of their sin. Colossians 3 says Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we must set the forgiveness of others always in the context of Christ's forgiveness for us is not our faith is not the Christian faith based singularly on the reality that we have forgiveness in Christ yes okay a little louder yes okay all right so if forgiveness is the foundation it is the singular focus of our faith. Then we above all people. Should be good forgivers. And we're not. And we're not. As a believer in Jesus Christ. Not just with your spouse. But with anyone. This phrase should never be uttered from your lips. I could never forgive. And then you fill in the blank. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not have the opportunity to ever say that. Is there anything that Jesus says, I could never forgive. Does he ever do that? No, he didn't do it with you. Now, I don't know how I'm going to ever forgive this. I can't imagine myself forgiving that. Uh, I, I understand those phrases. It's a work in progress sometimes, real forgiveness. But a refusal to forgive is never an option for a believer in Jesus Christ. I have a friend who has access, I don't know if it's called the dark web or the black web or whatever it is, like places where people can go that other people don't usually get to go and clearance and all this other kind of stuff. And he was able to get a copy of the Ashley Madison list for Fairfax, Loudoun County, Prince William and Arlington. It's a list, 240 pages, single spaced names. In just our area. Guy shows up at the church last week. Two weeks ago. Says I need to talk to you. What's his name? Tells me his name. I don't know, I don't know him. Quick call my friend. Can you check the list? He was on the list. Sits down and says. First words out of his mouth. I'm a serial adulterer. said, I already know that. I led him to faith in Christ. And now his wife, after a decade, is trying to understand and figure out what forgiveness looks like. I said, you got your biblical out. I mean, we can talk about a couple of different passages where... Except for unfaithfulness, the Bible says, but if there is, and I've connected her with a couple of other women who have experienced infidelity where the couple has actually stayed together. You say, I don't know how I could ever forgive that. I don't either. I don't either. I can't imagine that myself. But you know what helped me to get to the point where I am willing to never say I could never forgive something? Is when God brought me to the reality that under other circumstances, other circumstances than the ones I'm currently in, under a different upbringing, under different influences, under different all kinds of things, I could do anything. The minute you believe that you, under other circumstances, right now you can't imagine you doing something. But if you can't imagine you doing something in different circumstances, then you've underestimated your own sinfulness. Because when you say, under different circumstances, I could commit adultery, I would never do that now, I can't imagine doing that now, but I, I, under different circumstances, I could. If you can never get to the point where you say, I could never see myself under different circumstances actually killing someone, then you can't forgive someone who kills someone. And so the key to forgiveness is you coming to grips with your capacity for sin. even if under these current circumstances, you would never. We have to forgive murder in our family right now. I don't know how to do that. But marriage is based foundationally on two people who are in principle willing to forgive and willing to struggle to forgive when they need to. Christian ethicist ethicist Lewis Smead says, when you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your own inner life. You set a prisoner free, but you discover that the real prisoner was yourself. The prisoner held hostage in a lack of forgiveness is the very person themselves. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers, Robert Quillen, an American humorist. Number two, not only is marriage based foundationally and characterized by forgiveness, it's characterized by selfless service. Many in our mar- in our world today see marriage as a 50 50 deal. You do your part, I'll do my part. We both try to do our best, and everything will be okay. The problem is, is that's not the way marriage works. Marriage only works when we have two people who are giving 120 percent. And you know, sometimes when I'm doing my 120, and you can't quite do yours, we're still good. Because it's hard for us both to be giving 120%, 100% of the time. We have to be able to say, I am willing to give my 150%, not if you do, but whether or not you do. It doesn't feel fair. But when you walk with Jesus, when you trust him, then you are able to say, I'll give my 150% whether or not you do. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gentlemen, be the initiator of selfless service in your homes. Do not lord it over like the Gentiles do, the Bible says, but with a humble heart and spirit. John 13, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And whether or not you, fun- you actually, physically, literally wash your wife's feet, you must make it a regular practice of, in a very real, in real practical ways, serve her like that. The problem is with many of us, whether it's he's working and she stay at home or she's in the workforce as well or whatever, we tend to very easily kind of take this, you don't know what my life is like kind of attitude. And especially when we were in a different season, we, my kids were much younger and I'd be working and she's home with the kids, you know, we'd have, these, we'd have this kind of interaction all the time. You know, my first thought, of course, it never came out of my, my mouth. is like, but i have been thinking, what, what does she do all day anyway? And, you know, I never suggest you guys saying that. Uh, you know, and then, then she, I feel like she doesn't understand what, what my life is like day in and day out, dealing with people and their problems all day long at the church. Until she goes out of town and then I realize when I'm home alone with my, the kids all weekend long by myself, I'm like, oh, now I know what she does all the time. It is so hard to maintain a posture of selfless service because we are selfish people. Number three, marriage should be characterized by perseverance. Every married person in this room, if you're honest with yourself, at some point in your marriage, you are going to say to yourself, you are going to look at the situation that you're in, and you are going to say, I did not sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. Because you can't see into the future, there's no way you could have known that that was going to happen. But God knew. God knew it was going to happen. James chapter 1, again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want to read you a small section out of a book called Divorce Proofing Your Marriage by an old friend of mine, Gary Rosberg. It says, Right after Travis and Mary celebrated their fifth anniversary, Mary visited her doctor about an incessantly bloody nose. The physician removed a small benign growth from inside her nose and there was no further treatment. One morning a year later, Mary's routine physical exam, the doctor telephoned. He wanted her to come immediately that afternoon for a biopsy. She called Travis at work in a panic and blurted out the news. His response was immediate. I'll be at home within the hour and take you to the doctor. I don't want you to go alone. I'll be right there with you, whatever happens. The morning after the biopsy, Mary underwent surgery to remove a cancerous growth from her nasal cavity. Despite a painful course of radiation, the cancer returned a year later. Four years and six surgeries later, Mary's determined optimism was fading. Each successive surgery removed additional tissue and bone until the right side of her face was severely disfigured. Even her eye was removed. While the procedures ultimately bought her another seven years of life, Mary considered herself grotesque. In order to conceal Mary's disfigurement, a team of artists and doctors created a lifelike mask for her. Although the mask fooled those who saw her in public, she couldn't wear it around the clock. Except for hospital workers, Travis was the only person who saw Mary without her prosthetic in place. And until the day she died, Travis told Mary that she was the most beautiful woman in the world. He lived up to his promise. I will be there with you, whatever happens, he said. Their love endured and became stronger against the ravages of terminal cancer. The unconditional acceptance of persevering love says no matter how good or bad you look, no matter how much money you earn or lose, no matter how smart or feeble-minded you are, I still love you. That's the stuff our wedding vows for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Persevering love chooses to continue loving even when life dumps, dumps on us a world of reasons to fall out of love. I didn't sign up for this. And perseverance must must mark our marriages. It's a requirement. Forgiveness, selfless service, perseverance. Number four, it is characterized by protection. One of the greatest threats to marriage today is that those who are in them don't guard them. One of the greatest challenges to marriage today, the greatest threats, is that those in them don't guard them. What policies do you have in place in your own personal life about how you interact with members of the opposite sex? There are only three groups of women with whom I ever interact in any kind of substantive way. The first one is, they are the women who are the friends of my wife. And I am only their friend because they are friends with her. And that's it. And if that relationship didn't exist, my relationship with her would not exist. And it is always filtered through the, the, the grid, if you will, of my wife. The second group of women are the wives of my friends. So I have a friend. He has a wife. I am friends with his wife because I am friends with him. And if that were to change, then I would no longer have a relationship with her. And my interactions with her are always filtered through the fact that I have a friendship with him. Always. There's a third group of women that I interact with, and it's a little bit more difficult, and it's women who are connected to the church, my staff team predominantly. And I recognize that my relationship with them would not exist if it wasn't the fact that we work together in the church. And this is where guarding needs to be at its highest level. The reason why, overwhelmingly, statistically, the the largest number of affairs occur in the workplace is because that's where people always look their best, always smell their best, always everything their best. I never ride in a car alone with a woman. I never have lunch with a woman, ever, unless it's in a group. When I meet with a woman in my office, the door is always open. And these are a series of policies and practices. One of the greatest challenges in the world today is this whole issue of texting. I hate it. When texting first started, most of us were a little kind of uncomfortable. Text, you know, now today people just, oh, here's my cell phone number. And suddenly we're in dialogue with people who we, in really some measure, probably don't really need to be dialoguing with. You don't need to be Facebook friends with all these people of the opposite sex. You don't. You really don't. That is a worldly structure. It is a worldly trap. Out there in the world, people are just people, they're not male or female. And in the biblical picture, that is not true. It is absolutely not true. You need to be less friends with people of the opposite gender. You just do. And if your spouse ever gets upset about a friend that you have, your defensiveness does not help and you just should stop. It isn't worth it. Your spouse is the priority and maybe they're overreacting, but maybe they're experiencing something internally that is there for a reason. You don't need to see what their kids are doing at the pumpkin patch next week. You don't need to see that stuff. It doesn't matter. What matters is your marriage. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your relationships. If something feels weird about a relation interaction that you had, talk to your spouse about that. And if your spouse is telling you about that, don't hold it against them. They didn't, they weren't the one who initiated that weird interaction that they had. Allow them to confide in you so that you can together build that hedge of protection around your marriage. Number five, marriage is characterized by spiritual growth. It is characterized by spiritual, proactive, spiritual, pouring into your marriage growth. Ecclesiastes 4, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The third strand, of course, being Jesus. Sherry Fuller wrote wrote a book years ago called When Couples Pray. And her statistics tell us that the divorce rate among couples who consistently pray together is less than 1%. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. If I thought, if, 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 there's, if, there's, if I gave you a formula that said your statistically your business would succeed and would fail down to 1% if you did this one thing, whether you believed it or not, wouldn't you give it a shot? You should be praying with your spouse at least twice a day. Before you launch out into the day, And before you close the day at the end of the night. If no other time. Don't neglect that. Each of you, together and apart, you need to experience the collision of the supernatural in your lives. I'm going to make another shameless plug. Um... I just finished a five-week series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God at our church. And you can go to the McLean website and I will tell you it has changed my life. Preparing and delivering this series has changed everything for me about the way I see my life, my marriage, and the unbelievable pressure of spiritual warfare in my life. And I pray the armor of God over my family and myself every day before we head out into the world. If it is God's instrument and God's tool for, our, for doing battle, then you need to know this, the armor of God. And it is critical for your protection and the protection of your marriage. It is a spiritual battle. And this is the kind of spiritual growth you need. Sixth and finally, is that marriage should be characterized by community. I will tell you in the 30 years that I've been working with couples, One of the greatest, most significant factors in the destruction of marriages, the most common denominator in struggling marriages, is isolation. The reality that either of us or both of us don't want anyone else to know, haven't invited someone into my inner circle to hear my frustrations, my struggles, to give me wise counsel. It is suicide. To go through life in your marriage without community. Without giving someone else permission to kick your backside when you need it. Because you need it. You need it. Ephesians 4 is a very interesting passage. It says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You cannot do this on your own. Don't try. You can't be the man that God wants you to be without other men in your life. You just can't do it. You can't be the woman that God wants you to be. You can't fight for your marriage the way God wants you to fight. You can't get the feedback that you need to do a better job. You can't get the affirmation that you need for doing whatever you're doing well in isolation. One of the greatest challenges that I've had over the last year is that, and this is, I see the enemy in it. I see God's hand in it, is that, Over the course of time, my network has diminished. The number of men who have been in my life who are allowed by my permission to let me have it. And yet encourage me has diminished to my detriment. And I've allowed it to happen. Some of us don't do relationships particularly well. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. I get all that. Get over it. Get over it. Get past yourself and past your pride. Do you know that only 10% of couples who divorce actually seek help of any kind before they make their decision? 10%. How can you make such a dramatic, significant, forever, life-altering decision without talking to anybody about it? 10%. whether it's a small group, whether it's mentoring, whether it's asking for help, you have what you need here at this church through the staff, through the pastors, whatever. It is all here for you. You just need to take advantage of it. I want to throw up just the last page with real quickly going through kind of the, the quick overview in case you missed any of the points. Number one, biblical understanding that marriage is, in, is God's creation. Number two, that marriage is the foundation of culture. Number three, marriage is the primary tool for sanctification. A healthy marriage is characterized by six things. Forgiveness, selfless service, perseverance, protection, spiritual growth, and by being in community. I believe that right here, if you just took these things that, we, that I've just outlined for you and woke up tomorrow going, I am doubling down on these things, man, the trajectory of the health of your marriage will be off the charts. It'll be off the charts. I'm going to pray. And I think do we still have time for some discussion questions. I know we're a little teeny long. Okay, Father, I thank you so much for every person in this room. And I know that some here tonight may be here out of desperation. Some here are doing great, and that's awesome. Everyone, no matter where they are, I pray that you will help them to embrace these truths for their own good and for your glory. And Father, we will give you the praise. We pray all these things in your great name. Amen.